It's time again for another episode of WRBH's Figure of Speech, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we're welcoming on author Robert Fiesler. Take a listen. Greetings. My name is Robert W. Fiesler, and I am the author of the book Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. Tinderbox is a nonfiction account of a notoriously unsolved arson fire. This crime took place at a gay bar called The Upstairs Lounge in 1973, New Orleans, and claimed 32 lives. The book, Tinderbox, published in hardcover last summer, and it'll have its paperback launch this June 4th. It was also, dare I mention, my first book. It's been widely embraced by the New Orleans community and the country, and I am grateful for that. I'm overwhelmed to report, dear listeners, that Tinderbox recently won the 2019 Edgar Award in Best Fact Crime from Mystery Writers of America making it the first work of queer history ever to win this prestigious honor. And today, today, as I record this, I can say, because Lambda just made the announcement, Tinderbox won Lambda's special Judith A. Markowitz Award for Emerging Writers. It's crazy, it's unbelievable, and I'm so thrilled for the Upstairs Lounge legacy. So my name's Robert Fiesler, and I'll be the host and voice of this week's figure of speech this episode will feature a series of poetry and prose readings built around one common theme for Pride Month and the upcoming 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion on June 28th in New York City. And that theme is queer. But first, before we get into the readings, let me walk you into this idea. Queer. Queen. Fairy. Freak. Fruit. Nancy. Pansy. Peculiar, poofter, pillow biter, Peter Puffer, butt pirate, pervert, butt bandit, batty boy, tutti fruity, Clark Kent, bugger, bender, shirt lifter, second classer, second raider, mutant fiend, gaylord, friend of Dorothy, uphill gardener. Sodomite, invert, sexual psychopath, gay recruiter, rapist, sex criminal, sex offender, father, mother, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, neighbor, co-worker, Harvey Milk, Gertrude Stein, Troy Perry, Christine Jorgensen, Anne Sexton, Morty Manford, Alan Locke, Bayard Rustin. That's the kind of queer I'm talking about. The ones who didn't fit the heteronormative mold of the past and had to blaze their own ways, their own identities in the face of oppressors, bastards, murderers, and bullies. The ones whose full lives still often haven't made it into our history books. The ones who laid the bricks that we now walk. Okay? The ones who coined the language like queer, gay, transgender, the very words we now speak to define ourselves. That's the kind of queer I'm talking about. 
the radical queerness of our forebearers, the Stonewall rioters, the Copton's cafeteria dissidents, the Black Cat Tavern arrestees, right? The upstairs lounge victims. Today, we are honoring them and their voices. Thus, I've selected a series of passages written by or about these prophets and pariahs, all written by or about queer Americans who believed in the dream of this country decades before this country believed in them, okay? And who knew what Tony Kushner was writing about in Angels America when he said so brazenly in the early 1990s, we will be citizens. Today, a poem by Mary Oliver, who died last year, a bit of queer New Orleans history by yours truly and my mentor, a guy named Clayton Delery, who's fantastic, and a piece of vital prose by the queer literary legend Andrew Holleran. So first, let's delve into the fantastic poetry of Ms. Mary Oliver. So the first reading is a section of a poem um, written by a legendary poet. Uh, poet named Mary Oliver, who was a lesbian, called um, University Hospital Boston. This is actually my favorite poem, like, ever written. <laughs> um, and you'll notice when I read it that it's deceptively simple in its language. Um, it's a narrative poem, so it's a story about one lesbian lover anticipating the death of her other half, really in such an antiseptic, patriarchal place as a hospital in Massachusetts. Okay, it is a swan song between soulmates, but it's also a statement of undying love and romance in the face of this mortal coil. A candle lit to beat back the void and to say to everyone, to the patriarchy, to everyone that oppresses us, yes, we loved. I give you University Hospital Boston by Mary Oliver. The trees on the hospital lawn are lush and thriving. They, too, are getting the best of care, like you and the anonymous many, in the clean rooms high above this city, where day and night the doctors keep arriving, where intricate mach machines chart with cool devotion the murmur of the blood, the slow patching up of bone, the despair of the mind. When I come to visit and we walk out into the light of a summer day, we sit under the trees, buckeyes, a sycamore, and one black walnut brooding high over a hedge of lilacs as old as the red brick building behind them, the original hospital built before the Civil War. We sit on the lawn together holding hands while you tell me you are better. How many young men, I wonder, came here, wheeled on cots off the slow trains from the red and hideous battlefields to lie all summer in the small and stuffy chambers, while doctors did what they could, longing for tools still unimagined, medicines still unfound, wisdoms still unguessed at, and how many died staring at the leaves of the trees, blind to the terrible effort around to keep them alive. 
I look into your eyes, which are sometimes green and sometimes gray and sometimes full of humor, but often not, and tell myself you are better because my life without you would be a place of parched and broken trees. Later, walking the corridors down the, to the street, I turn and step inside an empty room. Yesterday, someone was here with a gasping face. Now the bed is made all new. Machines have been rolled away. The silence continues deep and neutral as I stand there loving you. That was University Hospital Boston by Mary Oliver, winner of the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize, who actually died last year. And that got me in the mood, Mary Oliver did. So I'm going to read you actually another Mary Oliver poem. Uh, She writes tragedy quite well. She also writes uh, great meditative pieces. So this is The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, through their, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And that was The Journey by Mary Oliver. Wow. Fantastic, fantastic poet. Next up is a piece of history that I wrote about the upstairs lounge fire, so I'll set the scene for you. We're in 1995 New Orleans on a Sunday in a storefront church located off St. Rock Avenue um, in the historic 7th Ward. A young and daring gay minister named Dexter Brecht, pastor of a radical Christian congregation called the Metropolitan Community Church of New Orleans, has decided to rake up an ancient pain in this his small church, a terrible calamity that once struck his flock. He speaks about the unspeakable as he preaches. He speaks about the upstairs lounge fire, which claimed the lives of one-third of his historic congregation in 1973. On a typical Sunday night, you have to imagine, hopping and happy, it became a flashpoint of devastation in the past, and its memory still haunted Pastor Dexter Breck's church members an astounding 22 years later. Yet no one could or wanted to talk about this thing, this pain. So he's decided, Dexter Brecht has decided to name that pain and drag it out in the open 
in a sermon. In stubbornly doing so, Dexter Breck will eventually succeed in putting the upstairs lounge fire and its legacy on the map of gay consciousness. But on this day in 1995, he's afraid to clear his throat. This is Tinderbox by yours truly. June 25th, 1995. There was a fire the minister of the Metropolitan Community Church, a gay man named Dexter Precht, preached to his small flock of gays and lesbians. It was a fire so horrific that Courtney Craighead, the church's deacon who was standing nearby, couldn't even speak about his memories of the event. It was a fire set intentionally on June 24, 1973, resulting in the deaths of one-third of their Metropolitan Community Church congregation at that time, this fire, which had happened 22 years ago and one day before at a hangout called the Upstairs Lounge, remained so disturbing a memory that it had never existed in the pages of American history. This tragedy, congregants knew, was in fact the only reason that the New Orleans Times-Picayune had opted to send a reporter to hear their minister that Sunday. Quote, we gather this morning to remember, Brecht continued, remembering, whether we like it or not, is part of the human condition. It is good as a way of acknowledging our grief. It was a horrific scene to relate, a fire in a busy bar in the fringe of New Orleans' French Quarter that was set with lighter fluid. On that evening, flames had invaded a sanctuary for blue-collar gay men. The fast-moving blaze overtook the second-floor bar with deep ties to the MCC faithful, but the destruction would extend well beyond church membership, claiming the lives of 31 men and one woman. Although it raged out of control for less than 20 minutes, that blaze left a fallout that shocked Carl Rabin, the coroner who would struggle to identify the bodies using jewelry and hotel room keys. Fingers and faces and bones were scorched beyond recognition. Quote, they were just piled up, Rabin said. Quote, people in a mass one falls, then another falls. It's just a massive death. It's sickening. Then the story went silent. After a mere blip of coverage, it fell off the front pages of newspapers and then from interior pages entirely. Local and national television channels would dedicate just a few minutes of on-the-scene coverage to the upstairs lounge in which survivors were interviewed with cameras to their backs due to reporters' fear of legitimizing the gay lifestyle and victims' fear of outing themselves. Yet, in fact, the tragedy had affected nearly every segment of New Orleans' closeted gay community, estimated a month later by the local Gay People's Coalition to be from 40,000 to 100,000 of the city's then 600,000 residents. Most of the dead, educated and illiterate, young and old, white and black, including a hustler and a minister and a dentist, perished within the fire's first 
360 seconds. The upstairs lounge, Pastor Dexter Brecht related to his flock, represented a moment that exposed a majority of citizens as at best apathetic towards homosexuals, while also revealing that civil rights movements of the era were tone deaf to homosexual plight. Indeed, civil rights and feminist constituencies of the 1970s did not exactly leap to the defense of the upstairs lounge victims. The tragedy was not noted in in Distaff, New Orleans feminist magazine. It was a time when lesbians themselves were marginalized from quote-unquote mainstream feminists, nor was there any mention in iconic black newspapers like the Chicago Daily Defender, despite there being a black upstairs lounge victim. Quote, this fire was a holocaust, Dexter Brecht intoned. Quote, perhaps not in the millions like in the 40s, but surely as devastating to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities. That was Tinderbox about the upstairs lounge fire. And I feel like I've danced around the upstairs lounge at this point with that reading, but I haven't quite let you in. So I'm going to read you a text about the kind of place that the upstairs lounge, this ragtag bar located on the fringe of the French Quarter in a secret second-story location on the corner of Iberville Street and Charter Street, what it was like. Um, And to do so so that you understand what it was like to hear the laughter and the joy before the screams, um, I'm going to read a piece of text from my mentor in upstairs lounge history. Uh, history, a guy named uh, Clayton Dellery. So Clayton Dellery's book, The Upstairs Lounge Arson, uh, published in 2014, and it was a 2015 recipient of the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities Book of the Year. It was also a Lambda Literary Award finalist. It is a fantastic book on The Upstairs Lounge, and I recommend it. And I'm going to read you a section of Clayton Dellery's uh, The Upstairs Lounge Arson. When bartender of the upstairs lounge Buddy Rasmussen moved the beer bust into the main bar and lounge spaces, its popularity exploded. Instead of attracting only about a dozen people, it now attracted a hundred or more. The crowds grew even more when Buddy hired a musician, David Stewart Gary, to play the White Baby Grand on Sundays. David, quickly nicknamed Piano Dave, was a handsome young man who played piano at several bars and hotels throughout the quarter during his career. He would leave his principal job at the Marriott Hotel across the street and sit at the piano at the upstairs lounge, looking around at his audience and saying, Ready, kiddies? When he was at the Keys, every beer bus turned into a sing-along, encouraging people to stay long after beer pitchers had been taken off their tables, just as holiday decorations and posters of hunky men tended to accumulate at the upstairs lounge over time, so did rituals and traditions. One of these rituals was introduced by Richard Cross, known usually by the nickname Ricky, unless he was being called by his other nickname, Mother Cross. He was only in his 20s, so it is unclear how he received such a maternal name. But during the sing-along portion 
of one or more of the beer bus at the upstairs lounge. Mother Cross requested a song that was first recorded by the Brotherhood of Man in 1970 and that was covered a year later by Sonny and Cher. Its title was United We Stand. And it became a ritual to sing this song at the end of every beer bust, often not just once, but again and again. Even today, several former patrons of the Upstairs Lounge make a point of mentioning this song and its prominence in the Upstairs Lounge culture. Other Upstairs Lounge traditions included parties to celebrate Mardi Gras, of course, and Halloween, which was actually the bar's anniversary. But there was also an annual Easter bonnet contest and a regular celebration, which was suggestively nicknamed the Moonlight Cruise. Another of Buddy's popular innovations at the Upstairs Lounge was the tricycle race, inspired by a running gag from the television show Rowan and Martin's Laughing. The show would regularly feature a video clip of a man riding a tricycle, hitting an obstacle, and falling down. For the Upstairs Lounge tricycle race, Buddy would tape out a course zigzagging between the tables of the bar and competitors would get on a child-sized tricycle to see who could ride the course in the shortest amount of time, partially because the tricycle was so small and partially, one suspects, because many of the racers were drunk. It was common for them to fall off the tricycle during the course of the race, but that was part of the fun. That was a portion of Clayton Delery's uh, book, The Upstairs Lounge Arson, a fantastic, fantastic history on the tragedy. Um, and I actually owe Clayton a lot. Clayton was a mentor of mine throughout the course of, uh, of me writing Tinderbox. So shout out to Clayton. Last up on this episode is a bit of uh, lyrical prose from the greatest queer novel of the 1970s for my money. It's called Dancer from the Dance, written by the great, the incomparable Andrew Holleran. Here's the scene. A man named Malone, a queer guy nearing middle age, has left his first lover and then entered a period of prolonged metamorphosis and mourning where he barely leaves the house of his friend. Malone's like a chrysalis, transforming, changing. You have to imagine. And when, when Malone finally reemerges into the world of New York City, something in him has fundamentally clicked, altered, gotten sexy. He has grown wings. Malone steps into a thriving metropolis that embraces him as the it gay, the king queen, the dancer in the center of the floor whose gyrations define the music at the gay club. Okay, I give you a section of Dancer from the Dance by Andrew Holleran. Malone walked down the cobblestone street to the old factory building where he and Frankie, his first lover, had lived that earlier summer. Malone walked up the riverside till he came to that forlorn neighborhood whose awning-covered sidewalks and meatpacking plants, an air of rural desertion he loved. He saw the dark figures crossing the piazzas far ahead of him. He paused to see the carcasses of pigs, blue-white, and bright red slide on steel wire from the trucks into the refrigerated depths of the butchers, while out at his back homosexual young men trod, 
that Via Dolorosa searching in a dozen bars, a string of parked trucks, abandoned piers, empty lots for the magician of love. Malone paused beneath the pale, chaste moon and watched the dark figures vanish and appear again. He drew in the silvery air with one hand the sign of the cross, and then he went dancing. He danced till seven that morning, and he danced for three winters after that. He was a terrible dancer at first, stiff and unhappy. I used to see him standing on the floor with a detached look of composure on his face while his great friend Sutherland danced brilliantly around him. Sutherland danced with one, uh, with a cigarette in one hand, hardly moving at all, as he turned slowly around and surveyed the other dancers for all the world like someone at a cocktail party perusing the other guests. He always danced with a cigarette, with very subtle movements, loose, relaxed, of the shoulders and hips, except when a song came on he loved from the old days for Sutherland had been dancing long before any of us, such as looking for my baby, and then he would cut away and leave Malone standing self-consciously on the floor while Sutherland cut back and forth across the room in a choreography only a natural dancer can improvise. Then he would calm down again and stand there with his cigarette, barely moving to the music. I was once in a place with Sutherland when, over the din of the music, I became aware of a single high note being sustained, and deciding it was in the record, thought no more, until I heard it again in another song, and realized finally it was Sutherland, singing a high-piercing E-flat as he danced to Barabbas. The two of them, Sutherland and Malone, began to dance the winter. The twelfth floor opened. The year we returned from Fire Island in September, distressed because, what with the demise of Sanctuary, there was as yet no place to dance. Such was our distress at the time. We would not stop dancing. We moved with the regularity of the Pope from the city to Fire Island in the summer, where we danced till the fall. And then, with the geese flying south, the butterflies dying in the dunes, we found some new place in Manhattan and danced all winter there. The composition of our band of dancers changed, but usually it included one doctor, one hustler, one designer, one discare, one dealer, and the assorted souls who had no idea what they were doing on earth and moved from disguise to disguise. Decorator, haircutter, bank teller, magazine salesman, stockbroker, with a crazy look in their eyes because their real happiness was only in music and sex. We danced the fall of 1971 in a dive off Times Square, living on rumors that the 12th floor would open soon after Thanksgiving. And that is when we first saw Malone with Sutherland. Sutherland we all knew or knew of. Even among us, he was thought to come from another planet. Now, of all the bonds between homosexual friends, none was greater than that between the friends who danced together. The friend you danced with when you had no other lover was the most important person in your life. That was Dancer from the Dance from Andrew Holleran. 
And this was Figure of Speech, exploring the theme of queer. I'm Robert Fiesler, author of the book Tinderbox. And listeners, as Tony Kushner wrote, we will be citizens. We will continue to beat back the bastards with our beauty and our talents and our dancing. It gets sexier. It gets better. And tomorrow will be different for our queer children. Until then, I bid you peace in the struggle and queerness wherever you are. Happy Pride Month and happy Stonewall 50, folks. That was author Robert Fiesler, and that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in on Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.